Northampton Castle is buzzing. The castle stands just outside the walls of the town in central England. It's an imposing, state-of-the-art fortress, defended on one side by the River Neen and by deep ditches on the others. It has thick, high stone walls and space inside for hundreds of people to live and work. This is a secure royal stronghold, and today, in early October 1164, King Henry II is in residence. By day he sits in the castle's great hall, surrounded by England's most powerful men and a crack team of lawyers. They're all here because Henry's overseeing a trial. And not just any old trial. The jury today is a great council of barons and bishops. And in the dock is none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, once Henry's chief minister and closest confidant but now the king's bitterest enemy. Beckett is on trial for corruption, embezzlement, misconduct in public office and a whole heap of other charges, a lot of which the king's officials seem to be making up as they go along. Beckett's no idiot, and he's used to high-stakes politics. But here, at Northampton Castle, he's found himself in an impossible position. Every day he's being forced to explain or defend supposedly dodgy transactions, some going back years, with no warning of what he might be asked, and no paperwork to look at to defend himself. Imagine a bunch of barons and bishops going back through your old tax records. Why did you claim expenses for this Uber back in 2019? It's a show trial, and Henry, who's masterminding the whole thing, is being as vindictive as he possibly can. He's using the proceedings to torture Beckett, to punish him for what Henry sees as a total betrayal of their working relationship and their friendship. His ultimate goal is at the very least to force Beckett to resign as Archbishop and go off to live in disgrace and poverty. Or maybe something worse. It's an astonishing fall from grace for Beckett, particularly considering that two years ago, he was riding higher than any other royal official in living memory. But that's how it goes when you mess with the Plantagenets. And now Beckett is in the most precarious moment of his career. Henry will use every tool he has to destroy his reputation and ruin his life, unless he can cook up a plan. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 6, Meltdown. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash dynasty. Indeed.com slash dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Last episode, King Henry II appointed Becket to the highest position in the church, the Archbishop of Canterbury. When that happened, Becket was already the Chancellor, the king's most senior political official. And he was looking after the Plantagenet heir, young Henry, who was living and studying in Becket's own household. He was the golden boy, the chosen one. But in just two years, Becket has thrown it all away. He resigned the Chancellorship as he wanted to focus on his role as Archbishop, and now he's close to losing that too. He's gone from being the man who did all of Henry's dirty work to the person who's constantly getting in the way. Now he finds himself on trial in Northampton Castle. How did it come to this? To unpick why, we have to get Beckett on the psychiatrist's couch for a moment to work out who he is and why Henry II got him so very wrong. I've always been fascinated by Thomas Beckett. He's one of the few non-royal characters from this age that it feels like we can really get to know on a personal and even psychological level. And I'm intrigued by him despite or even because of the fact that he's one of the most frustrating, straight-up annoying people in the whole of British history. For me, the single most important thing we need to know about Beckett is that deep down he's a cliché a chippy middle-class boy who always feels slightly out of his depth, socially, academically, financially. I don't say that with any prejudice against chippy middle-class boys who feel slightly out of their depth. It takes one to no one, as they say. But in our story, this really matters. It's not just social commentary, it's life or death. But let's get back to the facts. Beckett's a Londoner, born to a respectable but bang-average family of Norman immigrants. They came over to England after 1066 and made a beeline for its most cosmopolitan city, earning their living as merchants and landlords. As a child, Thomas is well-educated, up to a point. He goes to a grammar school in London, sort of a high school run by the church for brainy boys, and spends a year studying in Paris. But then his dad runs out of money, and Beckett is forced to come home early, unqualified to be an academic or a high-ranking churchman. Instead, he has to go and get an office job in a church, clerking, shuffling papers around. It turns out he's rather good at shuffling papers around, and after a while he lands a gig with none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald of Beck. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the top churchman in the country, so he's moving on up. And Becket does so well that by the time of Henry Plantagenet's takeover in 1154, he's an archdeacon, a sort of senior private secretary to Theobald. When King Henry and Queen Eleanor come to power, they're looking for fresh blood to staff the new administration. Henry hears that Becket's got the goods and takes a punt. He plucks him out of Theobald's office and makes him Lord Chancellor. Very roughly, that's like being Prime Minister today, although with a monarch who's a bit more into starting wars and reforming the entire state than you get these days. It's a lucky break, but Becket gets it on merit. 
And as we saw in the last episode, he thrives, becoming Henry's most trusted confidant. Yet even as he's succeeding, some red flags start to wave. For a start, Beckett has totally different priorities and habits to the king. Henry's scratty and scruffy. He hates pretension. He always has dirt under his fingernails, and he serves wine at his court so disgusting that you have to filter bits out of it through your teeth. Beckett, meanwhile, leans into all the trappings of luxury. He's a snob. He's obsessed with fancy food, fine wine, stylish clothes and good manners. All the things middle-class people have always aspired to, which true poshos either don't care about or totally take for granted. Henry teases him for this constantly, even bullies him. There's this famous anecdote. Henry and Beckett are walking along and they see an old beggar freezing in the street. Henry says, wouldn't it be nice to give that poor old guy a warm cloak? Beckett agrees, of course. Great, says Henry, and orders Beckett to give him his own cloak, which is brand new, scarlet and fur-lined. It's Beckett's favourite item of clothing. And when Beckett doesn't take it off, Henry physically wrestles him, tears the cloak off and hands it over to the beggar, laughing his head off. Beckett's humiliated and furious. And this sort of thing happens all the time. But no matter how much Henry tries to force Beckett out of his snobbery and insecurity, it has no effect. Beckett's problem is that he never really believes he deserves to be where he is, so he always has to overcompensate. He can't just be a chancellor. He has to be the most magnificent chancellor England's ever seen. He can't just go to France as the king's ambassador. He has to take packs of dogs and monkeys and knights and a free beer sign. When he goes to Toulouse with Henry II on campaign in 1158, he wants to be the most badass churchman who ever rode into battle. He urges Henry to attack, 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 and gets frustrated when Henry decides they can't win and retreats. So when I look at Beckett, I see a classic case of imposter syndrome. He feels inadequate and he deals with it by trying to overachieve to an almost comical degree. For most of his career, this serves him pretty well. After all, he goes from a diligent but unremarkable churchman to one of the leading politicians in Europe in less than five years. But when Beckett becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, the real problems start. Because now he has to work out how to pull the levers of the state with one hand and of the church with the other. Or he has to choose which job he wants to do properly. That's going to be a problem. And Beckett's conflicts of interest, alongside his holier-than-thou attitude, are going to put him on a collision course with the one guy he needs to keep on side. The King. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Now we've done some armchair psychoanalyzing of Beckett, let's get back to the trial at Northampton Castle. What brought Henry and Beckett to this point? Well, it turns out that making Beckett Archbishop of Canterbury was one of the worst HR moves in the whole of the Middle Ages. From the moment he's appointed, deep down, Beckett doesn't think he's fit for the job. And maybe he's right. He's not got the education. He's technically not even a priest. He has to be quickly ordained before he can take up the post of Archbishop. And that makes him go a bit woo-woo. Almost as soon as the mitre is placed on his head, he has a total crisis of confidence. A more secure person, or someone who didn't care quite as much, might have accepted the appointment as a stroke of good luck. After all, the real job wasn't communing with God, but helping get royal policy through. This should have been home territory for Beckett the politician. Specifically, Henry wants him to push through a big reform known as the Constitutions of Clarendon. This is a set of new English laws designed by Henry to curb the power of the church and give the crown sweeping control over church officials. That sounds dry, but actually it's a big deal. Take this example. As things stand church clerks can't be tried and punished for crimes at all in royal courts. They can only come before church courts. And church courts can only impose sentences up to imprisonment and flogging, which I don't fancy particularly, but which are just a slap on the wrist by the standards of the time. So who counts as a clerk? Well, anyone with any status or post, however minor, in the church, which means about 20% of people in England. That's a hell of a lot of people effectively immune from prosecution for crimes as serious as murder or rape. Henry wants criminals to face the full penalty of the royal law, meaning they can be hanged or mutilated for serious offences. Deep down, he wants more control over the church. But instead of helping push the constitutions of Clarendon through, Beckett immediately starts resisting them. He says the very independence of the church is at risk. He then resigns from his other job, the chancellorship, saying he can't give his role as archbishop his proper attention while he's also working for the crown. At the same time, he changes the way he lives and works. People who know him say he starts wearing a deliberately itchy hair shirt under his fine clothes, getting out of bed before dawn to wash the feet of paupers and lepers, swapping his extravagant meals for the plainest food, fasting regularly and drinking fennel water instead of wine. He starts studying the Bible all the time, quoting it in every other breath. In other words, he becomes literally the last person you ever want to get stuck talking to at a party. But in Beckett's own mind, he's doing everything he can to be the model Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's precisely the opposite of what Henry wants which is a corrupt and pliable Archbishop of Canterbury who'll give the king an easy life. 
As you might have guessed, I've been mildly obsessed with Beckett for years. If you want to hear more about my love-hate relationship with this strange bloke, I'll be getting into it on this week's subscriber episode. Anyway, Beckett and Henry begin clashing in earnest in July 1163, barely a year after Beckett has been made Archbishop. Things escalate quickly. It starts with private bickering. Then it shifts to furious public arguments. In a matter of weeks, Henry and Beckett are at loggerheads, to the point where the king sends orders that his son and heir, young Henry, is to be removed from Beckett's household. By the end of the year, they're completely estranged. Henry starts confiscating Beckett's properties, and when Henry, Eleanor and their children celebrate Christmas in splendid fashion at a palace in Berkhamsted, Beckett is very much not invited. And Henry's not done. He wants Beckett completely out of his life. But getting rid of Beckett isn't a simple matter. He's now powerful in his own right, and if Henry handles the situation badly, it could blow up in his face, maybe even putting Henry on the wrong side of the Pope. So he has to be crafty. In the new year, he sets royal officials to work on a good old-fashioned political witch hunt. They start going through all the records of Beckett's time in office as Chancellor, looking for anything incriminating, anything that could be used to charge him with crimes. And wouldn't you know it, they find just that. So that's how Beckett ends up where we found him at the start of this episode, on trial in Northampton for corruption. Beckett has failed Henry. He's embarrassed him. The punishment is going to be utter ruin. Unless... Beckett does something drastic, and he's starting to hatch an audacious plan. He sits through six days of bad-tempered hearings, the charges against him becoming more and more severe. The king is a constant presence, urging harsher punishments. Finally, the jury of barons passes a sentence against Beckett. The records are vague, but it's probably life imprisonment. Strangely, Beckett's not immediately thrown into a dungeon. Once the sentence is passed, he leaves the castle for his lodgings in Northampton, where he'll spend what may prove to be his last night of freedom. At this point, Beckett has no idea whether he'll be seized by royal guards in the morning, and, if he is, what'll happen to him. But he's not going to wait to find out. In the dead of night, he and three loyal companions disguise themselves as monks and leave Northampton under cover of darkness. And for the next two weeks, they go on the run, travelling by night and dodging royal pursuers. Eventually, on November the 2nd, they get to the port of Sandwich in Kent and hire a boat which takes them to France, where Beckett seeks refuge. He's escaped, for now but he's one of the most famous people in Europe, and there's no way he can hide forever. For the rest of his life, Beckett will be on the run from Henry. In a funny way, though, Henry will be on the run from him, too. And now, Henry's list of enemies is piling up, including an unusually aggressive King Louis, whose new son means he now sees Henry as his greatest threat. That's next time on This Is History.
If you're craving more Plantagenet drama now, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time I'm putting Beckett back on the psychiatrist couch and going deep into my love-hate relationship with history's most annoying man. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.